Hi there, I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent, feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades. And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure. Welcome everyone to the Love Capades podcast. Welcome to episode six of the Love Capades podcast. In episode five, Michelle headed back to live in Italy for the third time. While there, she got a job, met yet another Italian lover, and had some very intriguing proposals. At the end of her stay, she had to decide what grad school to attend. Let's find out what wild things happen next. The next chapter is called Grad School Was a Romp. By the time I got to grad school, I was cured of my prudishness. It was mostly the Italians, of course, who had taught me the delight of loving and being loved by a man. Italian men grew up learning that each woman is a blossom to behold. So when you are with them, you feel adored. You also learn that they could have another woman later that day with the same gusto. Yet it doesn't matter because in the now, you are a goddess. By the way, this is an outlook I've noticed is not shared by most American men. It's also important to say again that being on foreign turf, away from judging eyes and uptight mores, gave me the freedom and confidence to explore my sexuality. Luckily, I brought the new me back home. Shortly upon returning to the stunning campus with sandstone buildings, red-tiled roofs, and a tower fondly nicknamed by students as Hoover's last direction, I met Xander, my first younger man. Just for you to know, Hoover had been president of Stanford before becoming president of the United States. His presidential library is housed in Hoover Tower, which literally looks like a big penis. <laughs> Xander was an undergrad and about five years my junior. He played basketball at Stanford, so was tall, with light brown hair, bedroom blue eyes, dimples, and a big smile very swoonable. Most of our assignations took place at my apartment rather than the two public frat house where he lived. We talked about school, basketball, but mostly we would neck ourselves into a frenzy. As with most of my love connections, there was a twist. Xander was a devout Catholic, so he decided to wait for marriage to go all the way. And Xander had a longtime high school girlfriend whom he later married, and this found its way into the story as well. Holding back proved to be frustrating for both of us. With my awakened sexual daring, I was raring to go, and he struggled with mind over morality in the matter as well. It did lead us to creative makeout sessions. One obsession that presented itself was Xander's fixation on feet, a real live foot fetish. Who can explain which body parts are a turn on? I benefited from a lot of foot massages during our hot and heavy huddles. 
And I was instructed emphatically to wear toenail polish at all times. Something I do to this day, often remembering fondly my nights with Xander. After a year or so, we drifted apart, although have remained Christmas card buddies to this day. Before moving on from this delicious memory, let me tuck in my first love bite, or what I think of as a tasty little embellishment to add zing to the story. Handsome Sander and I didn't have sex per se, but we got ourselves all worked up when we snuck off to see one of the very first and very infamous feature-length porn films called Behind the Green Door. Talk about erotic. It was hard to sit in that dark theater and not want to, well, you know, jump his bones. If you're not familiar with this famous flick, Google it to learn all the shocking plot twists. It may get you worked up. <laughs> As I recall my love history, it occurs to me that many of my love capades have recurring narratives. That is, they wind their way in and out of my life. What this suggests to me is that I must have been more lovable, more attractive than I realized. For me, learning that I am lovable has been a lifelong challenge. Realizing that I was actually quite beautiful has also been a revelation. When I look back at old photos of myself, I'm often stunned to note that I was very pretty. But I didn't believe I was pretty. Perhaps I was blinded to this by the fact that I've always had the burden of being plump. And, at least in this culture, that is supposed to be a turnoff. Let me say... This is not true in every society, as became clear during my trip to Egypt years later. But in America, until recently, being chubby was déclassé. And if you buy into that assumption, as I did, it totally undermines your confidence. This may explain why I often thought if a man liked me, there must be something wrong with him, a kind of I-dare-you-to-approach-me attitude. This is not behavior which allows men to feel comfortable, except for those who like a challenge, of course. Thank heaven there were several of those throughout the years. Just such a character popped up on the radar screen one day while I was visiting the Bechtel International Center on the Stanford campus. This was a place where foreign students were welcomed, and I used to visit to get my international fix. During the late 1960s and early 1970s, the insurgent territory of Biafra was much in the news. It was a small rebel state in West Africa that had seceded from Nigeria. One of the princes from the Igbo tribe took a shine to me. His family obviously had enough pull to get him out of the danger at home and into Stanford. Here was the handsome black prince of rather noble stature, and the blonde bombshell with a stubborn streak. We kind of had our own civil war, one could say. He wanted and expected that I would become his lover. Looking back, I wish I had gone along with the idea to tell the truth, but at that time I wasn't liberated enough to partake. To be frank, at that point in my love evolution, 
I couldn't see myself having sex with a black man, even as gorgeous and regal as he was. A self-inflicted and retarded notion. By the time I had another chance at hot African sex was during a safari to Kenya in Tanzania years later. But by that time, AIDS was rampant on the continent, and I wasn't interested in chancing infection. Instead, our recording played itself out at the ping pong table at Bechtel, located on a sunfield landing on the third floor. We had fierce battles. He was agile and accomplished, and I'd become an adept player in my backyard while pitted by my father against my younger brother. Always competitive in just about everything, I wanted to win as much as the prince did. The concept, popular with most women, of letting the man win to prop up his ego never entered my mind. I'd already decided I could take care of myself and didn't need to bend like a willow to ensnare a husband. After several rousing matches in a row, damp with exertion, he would again plead his case for sex, sex, sex. And I invariably said, no, no, no. Another one of those choices I'd like to have back again. Tisk tisk, Michelle, no lamenting. The most significant liaison of this period was with a Southern Cal-looking blonde tennis player named Bo. And handsome he was. He was already a teacher, and I was studying to be one. My master teacher, who ran the reading lab at my alma mater, Menlo Atherton High School, was a practiced matchmaker. She made it her mission to get the two of us blonde teacher tennis players together. Fateful. Very fateful. Bo was a sexy guy, tall and lean with come-hither eyes, so it didn't take long for us to fall into bed. My bed. First time doing the deed, his squirmy little sperm hit the bullseye, and I was pregnant again. Something in the water at Stanford, I guess. No doubt you're wondering why I was having unprotected sex. I should have known better by that time, but I honestly don't recall why the major screw up, to use a bad pun. In any event, it was beyond distressing and terribly inconvenient. I still wasn't ready to raise a child on my own, so was destined for abortion number two. I was 26 by that time, and it was easier to organize a DNC than it had been when I was 20 but it was still painful on many levels. I was disappointed in myself for making such a big blunder again, but I was also angry that guys could get away with being so irresponsible about birth control. In some ways, Bo was actually more accountable than Bobby had been. He paid for the procedure, drove me to San Francisco to the outpatient clinic where it was done, and bought a gift which he gave me on the way home. He'd gone to Macy's and selected a navy blue sweater with matching red, white, and blue scarf. Whereas it didn't really make me feel better, especially after the anesthesia-free dilation and curatage. Ouch. It showed some empathy, at least. But Bo proved to be a rather odd duck in other ways. We continued to date some after the unpleasant event, but his quirk was that after making love, 
he refused to stay in bed with me. Let's face it, after sex can be so much fun and so revealing, to say nothing of being loving. If it happened at his place, then he'd go to another bedroom, leaving me alone wondering what his problem was or what was wrong with me. At least in this instance, I concluded the dysfunction was his, not mine. For me, this was an important step forward in believing I was lovable, even if Bo didn't know how to show love. Once I'd finished my master's degree, Bo and I parted company. But as with so many of my affairs, he circled back later on. And that encounter proved to be another doozy. It makes me wonder about the quality of my screening ability. Truthfully, I think it's difficult to find the balance between saying yes so not to block what's offered versus saying no when you should say no. The next chapter is called The Teaching Years. Once gainfully employed as a high school English teacher in San Jose, I instantly did two things. I got my own apartment, a studio, still at the posh Oak Creek apartment complex where I had been living, right across from the Stanford Hospital. It was a large place filled with young, happening people, plus a lot of recently divorced types looking for action. Next, I went to the Dotson dealership and negotiated a great deal on a racy 240Z. I wanted red, but the closest they had was orange. Those were some sleek and sporty wheels with four on the floor. I loved zipping around in that car. During grad school, I had seriously taken up tennis. Racket sports had always been my thing. First ping pong, then badminton as an undergrad, and finally the bigger racket. The reason I delayed playing tennis until my 20s is that my BFF growing up, Patsy, was from a tennis family. Her mother had been a champion and taught the sport, so I didn't want to compete with that as a youngster. It's regrettable in some ways because I could have been quite good had I started earlier. Oak Creek had three tennis courts, and they were the hive to all the busy bees on campus. You'd wander down to the courts and easily find a pickup game, and in some cases, even get picked up. One day, I spied a good-looking guy who definitely knew how to wield his racket. He had bourbon-colored brown hair, smiling eyes, full lips, kissable lips, and an athletic body. It was quite the package, I'm just saying. I often played with him or against him and instantaneously fell under his spell. It was so bad that my friends would call me when they saw Drake at the courts, so I'd fluff up and toddle on down to catch a glimpse, or better yet, a game. The trouble was, he was married to a pretty German Pan-American stewardess, as they were called in those days. This was very inconvenient, <laughs> but it didn't derail my mega crush. One day, I learned that Drake and his Frau were moving to her hometown of Stuttgart, supposedly to repair the failing marriage. This was good news and bad news for me. He'd be gone, but there might be hope of a permanent split if things didn't go well. About six months later, 
Drake reappeared at Oak Creek without Saskia. I got word through the campus spy channels that he was back in town and down by the courts. I could hardly wait to get down there to investigate. He'd grown a mustache and was chain smoking while waiting for a game, something I'd never seen him do. We ended up in a mixed doubles game and afterwards lingered a while when he explained his single status. And then he asked if I had a telephone number. Imagine my elation. My wildest wishes were on the brink of fulfillment. Well, not so fast, Nellie. <laughs> Our first date was sexually explosive. I'd fantasized for ages about him making love to me. So when it happened so quickly, I was ecstatic. And miles ahead of him on the highway of love. This proved to be a big problem in our relationship. I was in my late 20s and ready for marriage. Drake was in his late 30s and just getting out of a marriage. He was always wanting to put on the brakes, and my foot was constantly on the accelerator. So nearly five years of a relationship roller coaster ensued. Through it all, sex was our glue. Attraction was never our problem but there were scads of other issues. We basically saw life differently. I thought money was to make one's life better, and he believed it should sit in the bank collecting interest. The notion of caring for a woman emotionally was something Drake didn't understand, and I didn't believe I deserved. Creating a beautiful environment in which to live was essential to me, and he could have cared less. In fact, living well, which is my middle name, wasn't something he needed or wanted. Fine dining for him was a simple Mexican restaurant, whereas I preferred more elegant eateries. The truth is, I yielded to his choice in such things because I wanted it all to work. I don't recall his doing the same for me very often. The list of differences goes on and on, and yet I hung in there through it all. Why? I wanted to get married. He turned me on. I'd already invested so much time and energy. It was a challenge, and I wanted to win. He stayed at Oak Creek for a while and eventually moved to San Francisco. On most weekends, I would drive up there and stay with him. By that time, I was teaching in San Jose, so I had long commutes coming and going. For a break in our routine and to make his heart grow fonder, I booked a trip during spring break to the first club med in North America at Playa Blanca, Mexico. The American Express agent informed me that another single young woman named Gretchen from Oak Creek was going the same week. So she put us in touch and we ended up rooming together and becoming lifelong friends to boot. That week was a wild ride. Two blonde chicks on vacation in a place known for free love. A young, blonde, freckle-faced New Yorker targeted me as his squeeze for the week. David was his name, and he was both cute and charming. He chased me all over the sprawling beachside resort, but I unfortunately had slipped back into my coy mode. My heart was back with Drake. This is another decision I've always regretted, by the way. Why not club med sex with a lovely guy? 
who knows what would have happened had I succumbed. I later learned that he had become a very successful banker with Chase Manhattan in New York City. Fantasizing about missed opportunities is such an intriguing mind game. Many years later, while visiting my dear friend Gretchen and her husband Marsh in their Montecito home, I made it a quest to track down David. My spy craft worked. He actually returned my phone call from his office in New York. Gretchen and I were in the Santa Barbara Neiman Marcus store in the shoe department when he rang my cell phone. Once I reminded him of who I was, the first question out of his mouth was, did we sleep together? <laughs> While laughing aloud, I had to confess lamely that we hadn't. Too bad, I thought once again, too darned bad. It was it was clear that we had been two train cars who'd missed coupling way back then, and there would be no future connection either. Así es la vida, as they say in Spanish. The other memorable thing that happened that week at Club Med would make a fall-down funny movie scene. Every night after our daytime activities, Gretchen and I would appear at the bar with our puka bead necklaces in hand. These were the iconic wampum of Club Med. No money was permitted to change hands, just plastic pop beads. One evening, three handsome geos approached us with much enthusiasm. Geos were the resort staff guys, or gentil organisateur in French. They were supposedly the ambassadors of the Club Med spirit, there to make sure the guests were having fun. After a lot of tequila and much persuasion, the trio of geos convinced us to go back to their room. Once the door closed behind us, it took less than 60 seconds for the three of them to turn on mariachi music, don sombreros, totally disrobe, and jump up and down on the bed with their ding-dongs dancing like Mexican jumping beans. They obviously had practiced this routine Many times. I'll never forget it. Instantly, the two of us wanted out of there. I headed for the door and somehow managed to get myself into the hallway. Gretch was close behind, but two of the bad boys had grabbed her, and she became taffy in a pulling contest, with me yanking as hard as I could to save my friend from an unwanted south-of-the-border baptism. Finally, she was freed, and we ran like the wind far away from our geo admirers. My plan to make Drake's heart grow a little fonder seemed to work. A week after my return, he suggested I come live with him in San Francisco that summer during my teaching hiatus. This was definitely an upgrade in the commitment department. He had given up his career as a mortgage broker and had taken a low-level job at Golden Gate Park running the tennis shop. Who knows why he made that career decision? He'd slipped into a tennis bum mentality after his failed marriage. I, on the other hand, being an industrious young woman, found a temporary job at PG&E, of all places, once again serving as a secretary. 
It bears mentioning that in my era, women only had three real vocational choices apart from housewife, and those were teacher, nurse, or secretary. Thank God the culture has made tectonic shifts since then. You'll have to wait now until the next episode to find out what happens with the Michelle and Drake story. So Michelle, just listening to this episode, I just have to let you know that I I had a smile on my face the whole time. And it's not just a smile like, ha ha, funny, funny. It's a smile with love and humor and warmth. And one of the things that I'm thinking about as I re-listen to this story, because of course I've read the whole thing before, is what a lovely character this young woman, Michelle, is growing into on my heart. You know, I mean, there's, there's humor, but there's also such deep vulnerability. And this episode really shows that, you know, your love for adventure, of course, is there. And one more adventure after another is described here. But so is your self-reflection and your feeling of insecurities and, and your fears of being unlovable. So, so I have a couple questions, and, but I wanted to say that first. That's very, very kind of you. Thank you. You're welcome. So my questions to deepen the experience of the episode, no pun intended. <laughs> um, let's, let's start at the top of, of what you began with, where you talk about Italian men who treat women, I think you said, like a blossom to behold. It was, it was such a beautiful image. And that when they're with you, you feel adored. And then you go on to say, of course, they can go on to the next woman the same day later with the same gusto, but it doesn't matter because in the moment you're a goddess. Could you talk a little bit more about that? That's such a beautiful image. Well, I think it was the first time in my life that I began to understand that phenomenon. You know, Latin men in general, and this is a stereotype, but I think there's a great deal of truth in it, whether they're Italian or French or South Af- South American, you know, Mexican. Latin men are sort of groomed and raised and trained to adore women. You know, unless they're gay, which is a whole different story. But <laughs> if they're straight, if they're straight guys, they are taught to sort of cherish women. And they they approach each woman as if she is the blossom on a rose bush, <laughs> the petal on a on a blossom. They just have this amazing way of it, it's a it's a real feeling, and that's why it's so effective. Is that the woman feels genuinely adored? I remember when I was uh, later on when I was a real estate broker for many years. And I had this favorite title company I went to, and the manager of that office was from Chile. His name was Luis Fuenzalida, and everybody adored Luis. And he, but he was a typical Latin man. He was happily married, but he loved women. So he used to take me out to lunch, and one time he propositioned me to go with him to Carmel. And again, I said no because it was improper. But he's the one that explained to me how his father had raised him to adore every woman he ever met. And so, again, that was a man from 
Chile, South America, but it's very similar in Italy. It's just a thing. And again, I have not experienced in my life anyway that American men are raised that same way. Mm -hmm. But what's so interesting, even in listening to you tell more about the story, is that it seems to be a true stereotype in ways that can go both ways. Because yes, maybe the stereotype of a man who can really love fully each woman is a wonderful thing. The fact is, each woman is something good. <laughs> right? So they could easily, like you said, and even admitted later that same day, go with another woman with the very same gusto. I just love that. I, I know. I, I mean, I saw it happen over and over. Yeah, over and over. <laughs> but again, it wasn't like you felt betrayed or devastated because in in the time you were with this man making love, you adored it and he adored you. And so he did it later. Who cared? You know, it was like <laughs> it was it was genuine in the moment. Well, I think that says more about you, though, that for you, you didn't care. I mean, many have been spurned by by finding out that. Situation. Well, if I'd found out that Drake had been doing that on the side, I wouldn't have felt the same way at all. Right. So, you know, maybe it had to do with being in Italy. Who knows? Anyway, the next part that hit me is just a funny anecdote, but you talk about Hoover's last erection as little and what I <laughs> that's so crazy. When I first heard it, I was I because I've never seen it, I didn't realize that it was visual. I thought maybe some, you know, a lot happened up in there, but no. <laughs> No, it's, have you never been to the Stanford campus? I've been there, but I don't know this Hoover's last direction. Okay. Well, it's, it's a very prominent structure on the campus. Oh, yes. It's a tall, it's a tall tower. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's a sandstone colored building, but at the top are this, is this red tile roof and the shape of it looks like a big friggin' penis. (laughs) And... It's a very famous building on the campus. And so oh, my God. Hoover's library is there and there's a elevator where you can go to the top and look out over the campus. And But all Stanford students from the beginning of time have called it Hoover's oh, Last Direction. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that to me. <laughs> and then, of course, the next part of the episode that goes into your encounter and relationship with this wonderful fellow called Xander. Did he really have a foot fetish? Is this for real? <laughs> no, this is totally, totally for real. I, I absolutely. I mean, we would get together in my apartment and have these hot, wild necking sessions. And he would always go for my feet. <laughs> and it was like he had this thing for my feet. And, and he literally and seriously said, I want you always to have toenail polish on. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so to this day, you know, I always have pedicures. And when I look at my toes, I think of Xander. But what I also love about it is it didn't turn you off. His He had this fetish and that, you know, you weren't grossed out by it. You thought it was kind of, you seemed to be into it a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, we all, I mean, think about it, Sally. We all like certain body parts. I mean, like... I ad- I adore baseball players' butts. They are they're the best. They are just You're the best. You're killing me. You're killing me. Okay. Well, the- <laughs> and 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 men, you know, some men are tits man, some men are ass man, some you know. So who knows? True, true, true. So then the other thing about Xander that stood out though was, 
or did not stand out is that you never you never went all the way. Watch it. <laughs> Watch it. It's it's because of you, Michelle. I'm sorry. You get me going like this. But you never went all the way yet because of his Catholicism. However, what really hit me was how erotic and amazing your love capade was with him, even though it never got to that point. And I, I, I don't know, talk about that a little bit, because I feel like the era that I grew up in, where which was kind of everybody expected to have sex young, and it was before AIDS and after birth control, we didn't take our time to, to enjoy lovemaking too much without the sex part. <laughs> you know, I think, I think this is a great subject. So, you know, foreplay is really almost as delicious, if not more delicious in some cases, than the actual act of having intercourse. And when you spend a long time kissing and fondling each other, and it, it is and the kissing part, I just love to kiss, especially if you're if the guy is a good kisser. So we had, you know, these long sessions and they were frustrating too because you know you'd get to the point where you'd want to finish it off and he wouldn't and <laughs> he wouldn't he was very staunch in his determination mm-hmm. to be a virgin when he got married mm-hmm. so sad but true and the time that we went to see behind the green door oh my god which is the most erotic hot, steamy movie. People, if you haven't seen it, watch it. And we went to this movie. Of course, it's a big, dark theater with a big screen. And the most astonishing things are going on on the screen. And I I mean, I really, really wanted to get it on then. (laughs) (laughs) So when you were describing going to that movie, which I've heard, but I haven't seen, by the way, you actually insert it in this thing you call a love bite, I think. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more what the heck is a love bite. Okay, well, this is kind of important because when I was writing the book, I identified about 20 of these little asides, these little embellishments, these little storylines that kind of fluffed out what was going on in the scene or with the character. And the way I envisioned it was they would be in the margin of these of the pages and they would have a heart around them. Mm-hmm. And so... I just, I I love the word love bite, but they're just like little, oh, how can I say? Just little delightful snippets that more fully explain the relationships I'm having. So we're going to look forward to more, right? Yeah. So this was the very first love bite was with Xander and there will be 19 or so more later on. Great. Great. I look forward so then this elegant African prince story. Oh, my God. First of all, it's just beautifully described. And I can see the competition between you. It's it's a very rich segment of your story. But I want you to take us a little bit more to the morays of that time, because you as a grown woman looking back at this episode seem to really regret you did not partake. Yet, t- tell us what was going on at the time around black-white intermarriage and interrelations and stuff? Well, again, I was just on the cusp of everything 
you know, breaking out. And I was raised, of course, to only imagine being with a white man. And here came this totally gorgeous, regal fellow on my love path. And he, you know, he wanted to ravage me, let's face it. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I couldn't imagine it. So I kept saying, and it was a cultural thing, as well as a personal choice. But, you know, that was just not something a proper young white woman would do. Now, I can tell you right now, what a stupid, what a stupid thing. You know, I, I regret it. It's like, what a, an idiotic way of thinking. And thank God today, with all of the racial tensions and, and issues that are going on in our country to this day, there are so many interracial uh, marriages. And why not? You know, so it is one of those things I do lament. And at the time, unfortunately, I wasn't enlightened enough to realize that would have been perfectly wonderful. But the other thing that you set up here, which is male-female, that I find really interesting, is he wanted it in a really bad way, and you were saying no in a really bad way, which I believe to this day sets up between men and women the urge to want to conquer. You know what I mean? You're playing hard to get in the biggest way. And the fact that you acted it out on the ping pong table is just, it's so delightful. You can really see it. Well, it talks about competition for me. You know, I was raised by a father who, you know, made me kind of half woman, half man. In other words, I was like the elder son. And he he used to pit me against guys in the swimming pool and make me race against them to see if I could beat them. And of course, he was always pitting me against my younger brother on the ping pong table. So I, I am very competitive by nature. Everybody who knows me knows that. And I, I never let a man beat me unless he really could beat me. And I know, and I knew at the time, that most women who were hell-bent to get married, because that was really their only choice in their, in their own minds, I didn't have that bias. So it was like, you beat me or I beat you. Well, I, you actually said I'd already decided that I could take care of myself and didn't need to bend like a willow to ensnare a husband. I love that. But it's also, again, you were a very modern woman in many ways ahead of your time at that time. You really were. I, I, I agree with that. I, again, I was the only one who took that path. Everybody else I knew got married. So it it felt it became an either or where it doesn't have to be nowadays. You know what I mean? Yes. So let's talk about Bo a little bit. Tell me again how you met and the the saddest part or the part that really stands out for me, of course, is that you got impregnated by him again. Well, again, I was in graduate school to become I uh, was getting a master's degree in education and we had to do tutorials. And so I was assigned to Menlo Atherton High School, where I went to high school. And the teacher there was in the reading laboratory. And she knew Bo, who was already a teacher, and he was a tennis player. So she knew that I was also a tennis player. And so she was determined to get Michelle and Bo together. And so she introduced us. 
and we dated briefly and then very quickly, you know, to bed we went. And the very first time we slept together, I got pregnant. Oh, my God. Yeah. And you had been through such a horrific thing earlier with a pregnancy and abortion. This must have been so painful. Well, and again, it was, yeah, exactly. It was Stanford. I was a senior at Stanford the first time, and here I'm in grad school. And so I still wasn't, as I said in the the book, I still wasn't ready to raise a child alone. So number two abortion, although it was much easier to get one at, at that point. Right. Another thing that really hit me from the section about Bo was I think you mentioned that he, after making love with you, would not stay in bed after. And that also was painful. And you talk about how it was difficult for you because you often did not feel lovable and this could not have helped. But but you landed in a very strong place with it all. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, he was weird in that way. You know, I mean, and this happened after the abortion, by the way. So I would go to his place and we would have sex. And then he would go off to another bedroom and leave me there. And at first I thought, well, what's wrong with me? But then I figured out it wasn't my problem. It was his problem. He, it was his weirdness, not mine. So, you know, eventually the whole relationship petered out and I didn't date him any longer. But but it was an it was an awareness, I think a growth that I had to be to realize it wasn't my being unlovable. It was his inability to show love. Right, but it says it does say a lot about your emotional growth at that time to be able to hold it that way. The other thing that just to finish off the part around the fact that you had to get an abortion again and it was his baby is how he handled it compared to how Bobby had handled it and he handled it differently that did that help heal the previous experience in some way well i i did know that he was a little, he was more gracious about it he was more compassionate about it than Bobby had been and of course Bobby had avowed to be so madly in love with me which he's done to this day, and didn't treat me as well in as Bo did. So even though he had his quirks and it was an unfortunate situation, he was kinder to me. And that that was nice. You also said something in this segment that truthfully you said it's difficult to find the balance between saying yes. And not to block what's being offered you versus saying no when you should. What, what were you referring to there exactly? Well, I've learned through the years that to have an interesting, exciting life, you have to receive and accept what is offered you. And either you take it on yourself or you pass it on to someone else, but you don't cross your arms and say no. Now, this is something that I was just becoming aware of, and I've come to fully subscribe to that belief. But at the time, I realized it's kind of hard to find the balance. You know, they were men like Jack Sauer, the rascal, you know, that I probably should have said no to, but I wasn't sophisticated or emotionally aware enough at that point to, to say no. But I was becoming more aware. And so 
I realized it was tough. Sometimes you didn't know whether to say yes or no. So the next love capade that shows up, of course, is Drake. Can you just paint the picture once again? You were living in kind of a fancy apartment complex, I get, and the tennis courts were kind of the place where everything was happening. Lead us into that again so I I can get the setup better. Well, I lived at this place called Oak Creek Apartments, which is still there. It's across the street from the Stanford Hospital. It's a very elegant apartment complex, very large, many, 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 I think 1,100 apartments or something. And at the time, there were three tennis courts, and that was really the center of the social life. And there was a very active social life. I know for a fact that today it's very different at Oak Creek. But then, even if you didn't play tennis, you went down and watched, you hung out. It was across from the the building where they had activities and stuff. So it was kind of the center of, of the social life. And I happened to be a tennis player, so I spent a lot of time there. The chapter that you read to us moves on to your meeting of Drake, who who I believe you said was married at the time you met him, but your crush was big. So tell me a little bit about that first meeting with him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he was gorgeous and and also a nice guy. He was one of those people that pe- all, everybody liked. Okay. Nice guy, gorgeous, played tennis, played tennis well. And here he was living at Oak Creek with his wife, who was this beautiful blonde German girl who flew for Pan American. But he was always down at the tennis courts. And so I was there a lot as well. And I had the biggest crush on him. And it was, you know, a little bit, not just a little bit, it was a lot frustrating because he was a married guy. So then... He turns out they were having trouble in their marriage. So they uh, moved back to Germany, to Stuttgart, where she was from. And ostensibly it was to patch up the marriage and see if they could work it out. And six months later, he reappeared and I was over the moon because we started to date. Well, not only did he reappear, but he was clearly interested in you too, which which is very convenient, finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was nice. <laughs> you said something interesting in this section, which is you were very far apart in some ways. Like he was just out of a marriage, 10 years older than you. You were at the age where you were really ready to marry and wanted that. Yet you had this amazing sexual connection that was explosive in your words. <laughs> and and that became the glue of your relationship. But other things were not as a par on, on the same par. And if you could speak a little bit about that, your love for for luxury, or I'm using the wrong word, but your love for certain things, and he, he couldn't care less. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, bottom line, if, I, if I'm to summarize this relationship, he and I, you know, were very attracted to one another. I liked spending time with him because he was gorgeous and I was hot to trot. And yet, when I look back, we were very different in the way we saw life. I'm a person who sees life is my oyster. You know, I'm a I'm a big bigger than life character with a lot of joie de vivre. He was a nice guy, but he saw the world in much smaller terms. And he had a thing about money. 
he hoarded money, whereas I thought money was to embellish your life. So we were very different. And yet I hung in there for years. I And I wonder to this, you know, I, I often have wondered and still do wonder to a degree why I did. But there are reasons that I hung in there. And I bring up a question around that hanging in there. And it's really around painting a picture of what those times were like. I mean, isn't it true that the I'm going to use the word that was used then, the old maid phenomenon for young women was very, very strong. If you weren't married by a certain age, you felt less than. Is that true? Can you talk about that a little? Yes, absolutely. And it was really hard for me because I'd made this decision to be an independent woman, to pursue my own dreams and not to have to hook up with a man to make my life fulfilling. I already made that decision. It was ahead of the curve because the other part of us, as a, even me as a, as a young girl and a woman, was that you had to get married or you were, quote, an old maid. And that had a horrible, horrible stigma around it. And, you know, at in my late 20s, which is when I started to date Drake, I was, you know, getting into the old maid territory. And I, you know, so I had, that was a propellant. That was a motivation for me to hang in there because I wanted to be married, even though I also wanted to be independent. Right. Well, it does make me wonder, Michelle, if you were born in a different time, if things would have gone differently. You, you know what I mean? That, that yeah. I mean, especially your feeling about yourself, because the other thing that you speak about with Drake was that the notion of caring for a woman emotionally was something he didn't understand. And side by side that, I think you said, and you didn't believe that you deserved. So that stigma must have really gotten inside you, you know, in a big way. Yeah. It, it it did. It was difficult. So then the next segment that you read to us, which is, you know, slamming 180 degrees in the other direction of humor and fun and silliness is you go to Club Med. Oh, my God. And you meet this lovely guy named David who's chasing after you, who you chose at the time not to partake in. What was going on with you that you didn't partake with with David? Oh, geez. It's another <laughs> one of those, what the hell was I thinking moments. It's like he was literally adorable and obviously accomplished, as, it, as I later found out. And he, I used to remember he would knock on our little room, our little hut room, and he just was, wanted me. He wanted me. He chased me all over the place. And I, you know, I was nice to him, but I wasn't going for it. And the reason I gave, the rationalization I gave myself at the time is, well, I, I'm in love with Drake. Well, what a Dunsberger, you know, it's like he was, and then years later when I tracked him down and the first thing out of his mouth is, <laughs> did we sleep together? I mean, that just cracked me up. <laughs> fabulous. But also, you know, you were you were still trying to get something going with Drake. You couldn't stop thinking about him. So in fairness, at the time. Well, it's like we were a couple. We were an important couple. And, you know, you don't just go off on vacation and sleep with, with the guy who chases you. However, you were going to Club Med to, to do what? <laughs> to, to have fun, to and, have a vacation. And as you said, to, to make his heart grow fonder. No, I did not go with the intention of sleeping around. No, no, no. And to make his heart grow fonder. 
oh, that was the whole, yeah, well, I was going on vacation, but I also was aware that, you know, he might miss me and that might help our cause. Right. And what about the friggin' incident with the guys who take you and do their little mariachi naked dance? Is I mean, that you say it's like a scene out of a movie. I mean, that is one of the most hilarious things I've ever seen in my head or heard about. <laughs> well, what, you know, Sally, what can I tell you? It was literally hysterical on every level. And it happened so quickly. These guys <laughs> had it down to a science. I mean, I say in the book, it was 60 seconds, and I'm not kidding. Once we were in their room, they had hats on, music going, they had all their clothes off, jumping up and down on the bed with their ding-dongs flapping in the wind. Oh, my God. <laughs> even even hearing you describe it now, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But, but then also that you got out easy. I mean, it sounds like there was this taffy pull with your friend Gretch, but it never sounded like you were terrified. But I did have a question about that, and that is, it sounds like it could have been a scene where you could have gotten a little scared. I mean, he's trying to grab your friend and there's this taffy pull. And was it threatening in any way or was it just goofy fun? No, it, there was an element of, of uh, panic, I would say. Panic because we wanted to get the hell out of there. And I I was a, able to get out in the hallway. But Gretchen, they two of them grabbed her. And I held, had hold of another part of her and we were you know both exerting uh, as much strength as we could and finally they released her and we ran like the wind so it was no there was a moment where we were panicked yeah so but it's funny but there's also this element of threat there that i find intriguing it's mostly funny it's mostly funny yes well clearly mostly funny then you came home from your vacation at Club Med and you you hook up with Drake again. And it's interesting because you're an industrious woman. You immediately found a temporary job at PG&E as a secretary. And he, what did you say? Did you say that he had become like a tennis bum? Is is that true? Well, he he had been a mortgage broker. He, he had been very successful. He owned 10 rental properties. And then he came back after the breakup with Saskia and he kind of went into kickback mode, I guess. And he decided to work in the shop, the tennis shop at Golden Gate Park. And that led him later to open his own tennis store. But it was a very, it was, to me, it was very odd. And at the time, though, you said your plan to make Drake's heart grow a little fonder by going away seemed to work because you, you actually moved in with him, right? Well, I just moved in in the summer. Oh, oh, got it. Yeah, he invited me to come live with him in San Francisco because I yeah, you know, two and a half months off as a teacher. So I lived with him then. And then I went back to my studio apartment at uh, Oak Creek when the school year started. Understood. But still, the relationship was continuing. Now, the thing that really hit me about this segment, which which you're ending the episode with, is that in that era, there were really three choices for women. Housewife, teacher, nurse, right? There, there really wasn't much, much else. And 
And you were a secretary at that time, an attempt job, it sounds to me. But tell us a little bit more. And then, of course, you say, thank God the culture has shifted since then. But it, it really pulls out how stuck you were as an independent woman in a time that wasn't so progressive for women. Well, clearly, in my era, you got married. That was what most people did. But even before you got married, you might have become a teacher or a nurse or a secretary. And those were your choices. And when I think back on it, you know, I could have gone to business school. I could have gone to law school. I could have done a lot of things. But it was before that happened in our culture. And so luckily, as we'll find out later on, I moved beyond teacher to something else. But but those were the choices. It was very limited. And and I think young women today don't realize that. They don't know that we were stuck. We didn't have options like they do today. And so just to wrap up again, you know, you're a you're a feisty, adventurous, crazy, loving, living large woman that really comes through in this episode. And you're also vulnerable and I think the one thing that we didn't really talk about was, again, your relationship to yourself and your body and chubbiness was not in at the time. And that's just one more thing that we forgot to cover, Michelle. I don't know if you want to or not. Well, I've always been zoftic to say, and I was plump, not, you know, not fat particularly, but plump on the plumper side. And it was you know, it wasn't the thing to be, especially if you were an American guy. So, and and I, I think I inflated it in my mind more because obviously, obviously men were attracted to me from all these stories. I mean, you know, I, I could have figured out that whatever plumpness I had wasn't really an impediment <laughs> to men wanting to be with me. So, but it was a sensitive area. Let's just put it that way. And I had many experiences where it was difficult. And it led to my, in this arena, and this is this is kind of important to say, in most arenas, I had all the confidence in the world. But when it came to relationships with men, that sensitivity about my plumpness, my chubbiness, led to a lack of confidence. So... I think that is a poignant place to leave this, but it is something that I've dealt with my entire life. Okay. Well, I can't wait to to hear where your love capades take you next. Well, in the next episode, we'll find out what happened with Michelle and Drake. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Okay. Anyway, thank you. See you next time. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. 
I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by StudioPod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com. <laughs>